the transmitter. This is Synaptic, our podcast that investigates the people, the science, and the challenges of autism research and the greater neuroscience space. This is episode five of Synaptic. My name is Brady Huggett. I'm the host of this show, and welcome to it. All right, for this episode, let's begin in Hoboken. Hoboken was ratified as a city in 1855 in New Jersey. Today, it's of moderate size as far as cities go. It was about 59,000 people in the 2021 census. It has an elevation of just 23 feet above sea level, and that's because it sits close to the Hudson River, which separates New Jersey from New York City. Hoboken is a former industrial port, as one might expect, with that geographical location. Frank Sinatra was born there. That's notable. But because of its easy access to New York City, it also functions as a type of bedroom community for Manhattan. And that's important for this podcast, because in 1990, Evdokia and Agnostu arrived there to attend college. That's our guest today, Evdokia and Agnostu. Until then, she had spent her entire life in Greece, and she thought this trip to Hoboken would be for just one year before she'd return to her home country for the rest of her education. Yet, spending time in New York City, which she did often, opened up a new view of the world for her. As she says in this podcast, she saw a life that would look different. In New York, she says, it felt like everything was possible. Everyone was there. And so she stayed in Hoboken with its easy access to New York City. And that decision changed her life. We talked about that in this podcast. And we talked about the complementary aspects of her career, being a doctor and a researcher, and how those two things feed each other. And we talked about the existential holes that she sometimes tumbles down, where she contemplates consciousness, free will, and how to find meaning in life. And of course, we talked about the biology of autism. All that coming up in the next hour or so. Uh, It was a great discussion. I thought about it for days afterwards, if I'm being honest. I recorded her on July 19th at her office at the Autism Research Center at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital in Toronto, Ontario. Evdokia was extremely busy on this day. The moment her office was free of visitors, I went in and set up mics over a little table in the corner of her office. And then when we were done, she ran off to another meeting, so I felt lucky to get on her schedule, actually. So let's pick this up here, where I'm asking her about how long she's been at Holland Bloorview and how long she's lived in Canada overall. Here is your synaptic episode with Evdokia and Agnostu, starting right now. So 15 years you've been here. Yeah. In this hospital, I've been 15 years. Yeah. How long have you been in Canada? So I've been in Canada twice. <laughs> I did medical school and neurology in Canada the first time around. Left, went to New York, did my postdoctoral fellowship, got my first faculty appointment there, and then got recruited back to Canada huh. this time around for 15 years. Uh-huh. Okay. But so you were not born in Canada. No, I was born in Greece. I was raised in Greece. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about that. 
So my family comes from a small island called Estipalea. Mm-hmm. It's uh, closer to the coast of Turkey than it is to to the mainland uh, Greece. Um, lovely, lovely place. I'm one of five children. I'm the first daughter of five daughters. Oh, so um, you're firstborn. Firstborn. And all, all daughters. All daughters. Mm-hmm. My parents were very committed to the idea that we should be educated. So what they did is that we spent the school year in Athens uh, going to school and then went back home to the island uh, every time um, we had vacations or the, the schools were closed. Uh, how far is that? Uh, so at the time, it was a 24-hour boat ride. <laughs> okay. Now it's an about 12 to 13-hour boat ride, which is much easier. Or if you get really, really, really lucky, you can get a half-an-hour flight because the island had a military base mm-hmm. and it had a military strip. The military base is not active anymore, but the strip is there. And so very, very small planes, the ones that can land and stop, <laughs> yeah. actually make it there. Um, and so if you can find a ticket or a, or a seat, you can actually fly there for half an hour. So that's have, that's privately chartered somehow? No, 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 no. These are part of the uh, system of, um, well, there are companies who support the islands yeah. uh, in Greece. There's many of those. And um, they actually keep very small planes, the ones that have like up to 40 people maximum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's pretty much what you can land there with a really good pilot. <laughs> right. So the problem is just if you can get on a flight, there aren't enough flights. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, there's, I mean, there's very few seats to, especially in the summer months where I go yeah. back uh, to to, to find so typically I don't manage to get a flight so typically travel the same way I traveled when I was little uh, oh. in a boat okay so um, you're living on this island why, why was your family there so my my family my father this is my father's family and yep. they've been there for many 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 generations my mom actually comes from a different island um, they were introduced when they were in Athens because they are the two educated people in their families so my dad was the only university grad in his family. Um, my mom was the only university grad in her family. They met in Athens. Um, and But they were introduced. They were introduced. Hmm. The old-fashioned way, they were matched and introduced. Um, so the, the parents on both sides knew each other and said, my son is in Athens, by the way, he's educated in someone they said well my daughter happens to be in no, Athens no none of this uh, so <laughs> so my grandparents so it's an interesting story so my m- mom's dad was a fisherman and my father's dad was actually the, a teacher on the island uh-huh. although he was the the definition of a teacher there at that time was he was a 17-year-old teacher, right? So he, he was a, probably one of the more educated youths on the island that served as a teacher uh, in terms of my grandparents. Um, my grandmothers, uh, they were both... So he was, I'm sorry, he was 17-year-old when he began teaching? Yes, my oh, okay. grandfather. All right. right, right. Wow. So don't think what we he think was of a today. Professor. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, when we think of teachers. My, he married my grandmother, um, so my paternal grandmother, when she was 13 on the island. Um, and my maternal grandfather married my grandmother again, probably around 15 or something like this. So my grandmothers were illiterate. Yeah. Um, my grandfathers were not illiterate, and one of them was actually probably pretty gifted 
young man. He died uh, during the Second World War of pneumonia, actually, or heart disease or something like that. He was in his early 40s. Left my grandmother pregnant with her fifth child. My dad was the firstborn. Uh, so he left school um, to run a little store to support the family. Right. So your dad is suddenly now needing to take over, what, bring in some income, help exactly. run the family? Yeah. Okay. Uh, he was nine or ten years old. And by the time he was 13, an elder in the island had enough of the situation, stuck him on a boat, and sent him to Athens to go get educated. Okay. But so he didn't, sco- he didn't go to school from nine to 13? Uh, no. He actually took a, an exam when he arrived in Athens. Uh, and was put in grade 11. So he was studying on his own, and I guess there were people, uh, there were a couple of people on the island that um, had some education that were supporting him. Hmm. But he was a pretty bright uh, man, I would say. So two things. Uh, going back to the two women who were married at 13 and 15 and yes. illiterate, and you said that the that the man was actually kind of bright, but we don't know anything about the women, right? If they're, They were illiterate because of a lack of opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. these ladies, um, I would not, I mean, I would, my prediction is that they were pretty bright. Yeah, yeah. I met them, I grew up with them. Um, they were they were pretty bright women, um, but either they were not even given the opportunity to go to school at all, as it was the case with my maternal grandmother, or uh, my paternal grandmother uh, went until, until grade three or grade four, something like this, and mm-hmm. that was the norm for girls at the time on the islands in Greece. All right, so I think I'm learning something about the islands. So the islands are more provincial than the mainland. Uh, so at the time, the islands were very isolated, first of all. Secondly, they were not Greece at the time, right? Mm. So the, Greece has been under occupation by various people at different times. The islands that are closer to Turkey were under Italian rule all the way to Second World War. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Greece got them back as part of the treaties that were signed at the end of the Second World War because Italy lost the war, right? So uh, at the time, they were under Italian Italian rule. Um, I mean, they were pretty benign uh, occupant force uh, until fascism uh, came to power, but they were also not the focus of how developing education and developing their population, right? Right, so the islands, even though they eventually became part of Greece, were kind of a little left behind. They were left behind, yeah. yes. Okay. So it seems like the idea, if you were living on this island, either you wanted to get education or your children or whoever, you had to leave. You had to leave, You yes. had to go to Athens. Yes. All right. So that's what happened. This is what happened. So my dad is put in a boat. It's in uh, the middle of the war, actually, and sent at the end of the war and sent to, uh, sent to Athens. Let me do the math here. I don't think it was during the Second World War. So basically what happened is Greece, at, as the war finished, we had a civil war. So mm. our war lasted much longer than the war of everybody else in Europe because we had a civil war. Uh, as um, the big powers trying to divide who goes with Russia and who goes with the West, right? So uh, my dad was put on a boat under a tarp <laughs> during the time that would have been the civil war and sent to Athens, where um, this aunt picked him up um, and gave him housing, uh, but he had work um, to support himself. Um, And then what happened is that some of the people who had left before him had done really, really well. So there was actually a professor of genetics at the time at the University of Athens who came from the same island who took him under his wing and made sure that 
he was fed and had a, uh, you know, appropriately supported and finished school and got into university. And he's the one who introduced him to my mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think what was happening at the time is they had like this kind of wise men, wise women that were trying to like match up people outside of their families. So uh-huh. the families would have no way of knowing each other. But these people had seen this young, educated woman <laughs> in Athens, and, that, like, and they thought yeah. it would be a good match. Okay. One thing. You said he they put him under a tarp on the boat. Did he need to be smuggled to the mainland? He had to be smuggled, yeah, because he was in the middle of the war, and in, I think they were, the boats were traveling at night. It was a fishing boat at night, and they had to cross territories from... So the different the different the island and Athens at the time were in the hands of a different party. <laughs> so the the idea was if they just saw it as a fishing vessel that was fine, but if there's some young child or boy on there, they would wonder why. Okay, so he was smuggled out. All right. So, but your mother, her, her family was also from the islands. No. So my mom was from a different island, uh, a larger island actually. So my father was the first and had tons of adversity in growing up for the reasons we talked about. Yeah. Um, my mom was the baby of the family. She also had five siblings. Uh, my grandfather was a fisherman. And for that time, it was a decent job, actually. Yeah. He, yeah. he had an income for his family. Education was not something they thought about. Um, so he, her older siblings, only one actually went beyond elementary school, but one did. And that person that actually finished high school and uh, became an elect- uh, electrician, I think, uh, was the one who made sure that she had the opportunity if she wanted to leave to go to university that she did. And so she left, uh, she went to Athens, uh, she studied uh, Greek literature mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and became a high school teacher of history and literature and then was introduced to my dad. Okay, so she was finished with university. That, that was my question. When did, when did they meet? So your dad is in Athens at 13. So he finishes what we would consider high school, right? Finishes high school, then uh, goes into, he wanted to become a mathematician. The story goes. The story goes, he wanted to become a mathematician, but he had younger siblings, and Mm. three of them were girls, Mm -hmm. and they needed dowries. So he needed to actually come up, work enough to create dowries so he can marry them off. And so people said, if you become a mathematician, you're not going to be able to get diary, to, to <laughs> develop diaries. So he became an accountant. Actually, mm. he went to accounting uh, to, to to university to become an accountant. So he finished. My mother finished, and then they were introduced. So at at like 20 or something like that. I think a bit older, actually. I think they were in the like. I think, well. My mom was in her mid twenties. My mm-hmm. dad was much older. My dad was uh, had to marry off the girls first. Had to marry the sisters off before he was allowed to get married. Oh, okay, so not only like he, he's taking on the role, your father, his father would have been responsible for the dowry for the daughters, right? But since that man had been passed on, this was up to your dad to do this. It's it's sort of like um, uh, I'm a little shocked that he before he could think about his own marriage, he had to get these daughters married out. Or not daughters, I'm sorry, sisters married They out. were his sisters, but yeah. in fact they were, yeah, he had to behave as if they were his daughters. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, he, my dad passed away during the pandemic in at the age of 92. Wow. And we've had lots and lots of discussions about these things. And his idea of of kind of duty to to protect and, and, and to protect the women, to make sure that women had protection in the context of marriage, kind of survived all the way to the end. In fact, it was very hard for him that 
me and my sisters have taken very diverse kind of uh, routes. Uh, and it took him a while to figure out that a woman could be actually safe and happy outside of the protection the way he saw it of marriage, right? Right. So marriage protects a woman not only financially but physically. F- ex- yeah, exactly. It. So it was for him. It was he had a duty to protect his sisters, and the way he could do this is to establish them in their own households with husbands that then would take care of them. Wow. Okay. So then, he, then he is introduced to your mother when he has finished all his responsibilities for the rest of his mm-hmm. family, and he can focus on forming a family of his own. Mm-hmm. Five kids. Five kids. You're the first. I'm the first. And you were all born in Athens. So, well, the actual delivery happened in Athens, yes. We were all born in Athens. Five kids in six years, by the way. Oh, my God. Well, I guess he'd he'd come to marriage late, so (laughs) they got down to it, I suppose. Yes, there was a bit of that, and there was a set of twins in there. But they were still pretty traditional, I think, when they got started. Um, They thought, you know, they're getting married, they're having kids. My mom stopped working, although she, she had been a high school teacher before and did not go back to school until, didn't go back to teaching school until I was, I think, 12 or 13. And that's because some priest in Greece called my dad and said, you have a smart wife and she's dying of boredom. You need to let her go work. Wow. The next day, my dad, my mom went to work and something like that happened. And so she was then working for a bit, although she she got pretty sick. right after and died a few years later. She did? She did, How old was she then? Uh, She died uh, in her late 40s, so I'm now older. Like, she never got to be... Yeah, you're the older woman in a way, almost, yeah. 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 She never got to be what I, how I experience life now, yeah. How old were you when she died? So I was uh, finishing high school, and the youngest one was finishing elementary school. What did she die? Uh, Breast cancer. Ah. And d- don't tell me this was like, mm-hmm. if it had been discovered earlier, she would have been, okay, or no, what happened? So there is some of that, right? So she she um, had felt uh, felt something in her breast and went to the doctor, and the doctor said, come back in six months. Um, and my mom got busy with the five kids and went back in a year. Oh, no. And then at that time, I don't know that it would have made a difference, but at that time, well, it, didn't uh, help. it was clear that, it was. It had gone beyond what, at the time, they thought was manageable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's terrible. Um, di- so okay. So you lost your mother relatively young mm-hmm. as well. Uh, before we get into that, though, mm-hmm. because uh, it's clear, it seems clear, why your father, especially and probably your mother too, were like education is important. Right. Mm-hmm. Your father almost missed that chance yes. completely. Yes. So when he had kids, he's like, we're going to make sure that you are all educated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where that comes from. Mm-hmm. I mean, they. They were kind of interesting. So my dad uh, wanted us to be educated. He valued education. He enjoyed us, I think. He enjoyed having good conversations with us, seeing us grow. Although if you asked him why I need to go to university, which we did, um, he would say because we needed to have enough education to have stimulating conversations with our husbands in the future. (laughs) (laughs) So that was his original version. He changed his mind with the years, but his uh, his thought was that we would marry better if we were educated, right? Uh, Well, my mother was a different story right here. She had two older sisters among boys, and uh, the first one um, did not go to school and was a nun in a monastery, and the second one finished elementary school, was married off and sent to the U.S., uh, and she migrated to, uh, to with her young husband to be able to make a living. And so I don't think she thought these were the lives she wanted for herself. 
And of course, things were changing after the war. My mom was born in 42. So by the end of the civil war for Greece, things were changing and and she saw more opportunity and thought differently about things. So do you think, well, it's hard to say because you weren't, you being the oldest, weren't really of marrying age yet, even when she died. But you know, those are two varying viewpoints where your father's like, the reason to get education is so that you can stimulate your husband's intellect. That's not a good reason, right? Your mother probably did not agree with that. So it was kind of interesting. I, I, I think she, I mean, she did raise five very independent women. Yeah. <laughs> so although we didn't have explicit conversations about this, I think her signature is on all of us. Um, I mean, I was... I was pretty independently minded from early on. Um, So I had ideas about what I wanted my life to be. And I would say that my dad kind of came along. So although he had different views, he just wanted us to see happy. He could see us being mm. happy. I, I mm. like. I don't think. I think he was worrying, but I don't think he 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 never became a barrier. Let's put it that way. He actually the opposite, right? So I ended up living and coming to the states, and he supported me in ways that he couldn't even support me, and, and made sure that I ended up having the opportunities I I wanted. So. Yeah. He couldn't get it. Like it was just a hard concept for him to get, but he never got in the way of us making different decisions. Yeah, it, it's like um, you know he honestly thought, given the times and the way he, his life had gone, that that was the best thing for yeah. you. It wasn't as if he wanted to keep you from education, but no. what was important was his, yeah. right. And once he saw that you were actually flourishing this other way, he was behind it. Yeah. Okay. So, what, at what point do you think that you began to get an interest in science? Oh, I'm interested in science very early on. Um, I would say as long as I remember myself, I was kind of interested in science. I've changed my mind a couple of times. I was also playing music. I was playing the piano. Mm. And at some point, uh, I had this idea that I would become a musician, but it was kind of fleeting. And then I had like this very weird phase when I was like between six and seven years old where I was kind of fascinated with life and beginning and finishing and what death really is but not in a morbid way like it was I was not distressed by it I just drove everybody else crazy because I got my first Lego set and I you know in Greece your grave is actually a big thing they're like they're white marble structures that Uh we go to every Saturday and wash and clean and talk to our dead and they're part of our like lives and all of a sudden I got this Lego set and I made everybody their grave and I took it to them and everybody was losing their mind and I couldn't figure out why everybody was losing their mind. You were like, this is, I made, this is what your grave yes. is going to look like? And no. I thought I had done like a really good job. So yeah. I was proud of it. And I was still showing them how they're going to be different and pretty and whatever have you. Honor them to death. Yes. Yeah. And it was really hard for everybody else except for me. Um, but then, so I was kind of interested in like this idea of like what the life is and, and how it starts, how it finishes and what it means. And, but not in a, in a, traumatic way, more of a curiosity way. Yeah. Um, my mom got breast cancer when I was, I think, in grade six. And at that time, I started thinking about medicine. Um, the, mostly in a naive way first, the way all kids, when their parents get sick, they want to do something, yeah, right? I can help they want to have power. Right. Uh, but also, I would say there were examples of people in the medical field, but really carried us through, but I truly, truly admired. And there were people who were devastating to our psyche as kids. Um, Also well-meaning, but not thinking through 
what it means to have a 40-year-old lady um, having a terminal condition and having five, having five kids in the way they interacted with us. And well, I started developing thoughts about, you know, what it means to be a physician, how you impact people's lives. Uh-huh. So you, the, the way the doctors were talking to you, it's, it's something about that didn't sit right. You're, you're so like, there, was, there were a couple. Like, so he had an oncologist. I still remember him. And I think kind of well of him. I hope he's well. Uh, were young oncologists who sat down and talked to us, uh, answered our questions. Um, you know, if we were upset, he was there to support. If we didn't want to talk, he didn't talk. He um, gave our moms enough space to kind of figure out how we're going to work this out, but was present if we needed him there. Um, there were other physicians who just walked in the room, kicked us out every time. We were not allowed to be part of the conversations. Mm. Um, all we knew is we walked back in the room and my mom was crying, mm. right? Or my dad was crying, right? So, and I was like, there's something truly, truly wrong. I, I, I'm sure they thought they were protecting us, but I started developing kind of ideas about what it means to be a physician and how you impact people's lives. I still cared about science quite a bit. It was my favorite thing in school, but I also started thinking about what it means to be a physician or a clinician. And then uh, over the years, the two kind of started merging more and more. Uh, and then I thought I would become a physician and figure it out later. But um, finished high school. And remember that aunt that left yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when she was really, really young with elementary school education and went to the US? Well, she ended up in New Jersey and had made her family and offered that I go for a little bit uh, and stay with her. Just so to see the US. And also, you know, I was a really good student. Yeah. Like I was, I was a good student in school, and so I could have entered. I had, I part of me wanted to leave because I had, I had uh, applied for scholarship and I had gotten it, and I convinced my parents, who at the time they were both still alive, that I could, I can finish high school and go to the U.S. with my scholarship for a year just to see what it's like and come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my mom dies, and. So I leave, actually. So my mom died the year that I left. Um, so I'm leaving, and then my mother dies, and then... You had already... You, the, plan, the plan was in place. The plan was in place. The, yeah. And then, of course, the plan was that I was going to go back. And I was going to go back because um, families with five children, with four children or more in Greece have the right to transfer kids from one university to another just for economic reasons. So you can keep your kids all in the neighborhood, so your financial cost of educating your kids is lower. All right, say that again. So if you, what do you mean you can transfer them from one? So if I started, let's say, university in the US the first year, then I could transfer back to Greece automatically because my family had multiple kids. Got it, okay. Uh, so that was the original plan. Can, um, I, can I ask one thing about this? Because yes. this is somewhat similar to what your father had gone through, yes. right? Where, But what your father did initially was, well, I'm going to put all that aside and focus on the family. And so your mother dies, and now you're the head of these, you're the oldest of these five daughters, and you, you were like, I'm still going. Was, he, was your father... So, so this is yeah. what happened. I had already left right before she died. The family expected me to go back. Mm. That was the expectation, was I'm going to go back yeah. and raise my sisters, which were all in school still, and do all of that. And this was like where I, I really, truly, truly appreciated my dad. So he, you know, he had this journey, but he was like, you don't have to come back. Mm. Like, you really don't have to come back if you don't want to. 
and I struggled. I remember I did, I mean, I did a lot of inappropriate things. So they were, we're close, right? So of course I didn't want to mother my teenage uh, yeah. sisters who wanted nothing to do yeah. with me, but there yeah. was a, the baby of the family, right? That was uh, six years younger and just finishing elementary school. And I asked her, <laughs> and she still remembers this. I asked her, we sat down and I was like, do you want me to come back? Uh, because if you want me to come back, I'll come back. Of course, she had, I mean, it was inappropriate for me, inappropriate, like the whole thing was like, we're all struggling to figure out what we're gonna, how we're gonna cope with the situation. And, and she gave me permission to not come back, <laughs> if you like, um, poor thing. Um, but the truth is, I just didn't wanna go back. I, yeah. I had seen a life for myself that was looked different. My dad seemed to be supporting it, which I was totally surprised by and touched by, and so, I decided I was gonna stay and finish under, so this was my plan. I was gonna, made a new plan that I was gonna stay and finish undergrad here in the in the US and then transfer back to do medical school in Greece after. So you're still thinking, okay. I'm All still right. thinking I'm gonna do this. So uh, when you, so you'd, you'd gone to, this, we should say the school was the Stevens Institute right, yes. of Technology. Yeah. So that's in that's in Hoboken, Hoboken. in yeah. Jersey. Yeah. So not, not far from your aunt. Uh, you said you had seen this life for yourself. What, what, what did you see? Like, was it just the size of things versus the island? Was it the, I mean, the U.S., frankly, can be culture shock for sure. So, again, I, I mean, I knew Athens, right? So, because all my yeah. school years in Athens. So, it's not just the, it was not just comparing to the island. I was comparing to Athens. But for me, part of it was that I was not just the role, right? So, me going back, well, the last few years of my mom's life, I was quite a bit of the role, right? So, mm -hmm. she she was struggling with her health and I, I did have to do a lot of raising and supporting and cooking and cleaning and taking kids to school and all of that so it was nice to see what it feels like to to just study to just study mm. and in fact go to see my first movie i had never seen a movie in a cinema before uh, i went to see a movie what did you see you don't want to know i'm not gonna actually admit <laughs> oh, <come on. laughs> So I went to see Pretty Woman. Oh, and that's that was a great my movie. first movie. That's a great movie. Um, uh, but like this idea that there was like things that I had never experienced before, that I did not have to like fit into a day of like cooking, cleaning, taking people duties for other people, like actually yeah. feeling almost like the first time, like almost like experiencing my adolescence all over again, where I get to be selfish and have it be about me. Totally responsible, studying really hard, doing well in school, but having kind of this kind of idea that this could be about me and not about everybody else. Yep. Um, I did love New York. I did love, I had that feeling that everything was possible. Everybody was there. We we joke a little bit and we don't joke, it's tragic, but we joke that uh, we just finished our um, black uh, employee engagement in the hospital. And uh, we're having discussions about where we have at an individual level, where have we been culprits and, and what the opportunities are for reconciliation, if you like. Um, and somebody once asked me, and it occurred to me, somebody asked, somebody asked me how I interacted with black people first in my life if I grew up in a Greek island before mm. migration was mm. happening. And the only black person I had met uh, before I moved to New York was the surgeon who took out my appendix when I was six. Mm. Because there was a program for sub-Saharan African brilliant uh, young people to come to Greece at the time to go to medical school, right? And yep. to, to train. So coming to New York and having this experience of everybody from everybody around the world 
fitting in, everybody fit in. Like everybody's, it was everybody's city, everybody's future, everybody's excitement, everything was possible. It was really kind of exciting for me. I was really excited. I was mesmerized by the possibilities, right? Yeah, it seems hopeful sometimes. It was quite hopeful. Yeah. I mean, I, did, I, did, I lacked, you know, risk appreciation. I lacked truly evaluating who was included and who was not and yeah. who was supported and who was not. It, it was just a time of seeing the potential of like bringing the world together in one city and being excited about what this could do uh, for for the world. So I was I was just excited. I was an excited 18-year-old, right, that had the opportunity to study, get my English better, um, do well in school, only worry about I mean, I was worrying about my family, but... Yeah, but worry about yourself first, But worrying about me on a day-to-day thing. My lovely aunt uh, was there to make sure that I don't totally screw up, and my cousin, and I owe them a lot. Um, But uh, it was kind of an exciting time, and my dad actually did... He did did see it through for me, um, although he could not figure out what I was thinking, you know? He just knew you liked it, right? He just knew that you were enjoying yourself, and you seemed happy. I think he enjoyed seeing me happy. I also think, like, the story of the mathematician versus accountant I've heard many times. Mm -hmm. Like, I thought, I think he saw the opportunity for me not to have to become the accountant, but become the mathematician, right, from his story, right? That I didn't have to compromise. Yeah to kind of do caregiving at the time the way he had done. Yeah, but that is, you were choosing what you wanted, right? I mean, you were still, it was physician. That's what you wanted, yeah? Yeah, so basically what happened is I had applied to a pre-med program uh, and I had gotten in with a scholarship, although when I arrived, I realized that that pre-med program was um, in collaboration with a state medical school and I was not eligible as an international student. So it didn't quite work out like that, but it worked better at the end because he opened up many other options for me. And so you, you got uh, your undergrad was chemical physiology and chemical also biology, yeah, and a, and, a, and a master's also in chemistry or something. Yeah, basically at the time the pre-med program at uh, Stevens and I don't even know what it is now. You had the options to do biology, chemistry, chemical biology. There may have been another option. Um, I have an analytical mind, so I like biology, but I actually don't like biology. Yeah. I like biology because I understand. I, I I start thinking about how you model the systems, but it was not about me taking a book and memorizing system right. after system. Right? So right. the way we get taught biology was not what excited me at the time. So I did. I had originally done chemical biology. Had started with chemical biology, and then. Uh, I realized there was no chemical biology in Greece. And remember, I still had the plan of going back to Greece. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to get a degree that had equivalency and then got my extra chemistry stuff so that I can get a chemistry equivalency when I went back to Greece to apply to medical school. Okay, well, you did not go back to Greece for medical school. So, So what happened there? So, you know, by the time I was in my third, fourth year of undergrad, I had a pretty good sense of myself and what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. My family was doing better. So, mm-hmm. you know, my dad had seen what it means. He had come and visit. He had mm-hmm. actually came to mm-hmm. New York and, and, and visited my aunt in New Jersey and we took him around and got excited about things. Um, my sisters, except for the little one, had made their way out of high school. And so I was like, I'm not going back. I don't want to go back. Um, so I 
But I was stuck because I didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. And how do you do medicine in the US <laughs> without money? And I already owed quite a bit. And he had worked, he had given me, he had worked really hard and he had- Your dad. Uh, my dad. And yeah. he had supported me and I got supported by my aunt and my cousin. I lived with them. I didn't have expenses for housing. So again, a lovely, there are some parallels in the stories of my dad and I, but a lovely older professor at uh, Stevens. So I was like, how am I gonna do this? Like, I, I'm not even eligible for for loans. Like, I've, all my loans were on credit cards at the time because I was an international student, oh, right? And I was moving the money around, yeah. <laughs> trying to not um, pay too much. Um, so you, you'd get a new card with a lower rate and flip the money Yeah, and then over. flip yeah. the money around. Yeah. Um, so this man just passed me an application to medical school at McGill. And he's like, I know you're applying to the US and you're struggling about this, but why don't you check out this medical school? in Canada and the cost is much lower and it's a really good medical school. Yeah. So I filled the application. To be completely honest, I didn't even know where it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, but And that I had to learn some French to actually go <laughs> and study at McGill. But um, uh, I filled the application. I got an interview. Um, I got accepted to McGill. And wow. the, the rest is history. Yeah. Wow. So you, I, I mean, so McGill's in Montreal, we should say yes. that. And Montreal is a sort of bilingual city, French and English. Totally bilingual, yeah. Were the classes in French? No. So education was in English, which is what made it possible for me. Um, but uh, so got there for the interview. Um, uh, I remember that. It was February in mm. Montreal. It was like mm. minus 40. Yeah. I didn't think it could get that cold. Like, yeah. I thought it was an impossible state. Um, I was dressed like, you know, the way that 20-something-year-olds who go on an interview get dressed in a little suit and yeah. my little shoes. And um, it was, uh, for those of, uh, for, for the audience that doesn't know Montreal, the medical school is sitting on top of a hill. Um, and so I, I remember I couldn't actually uh, walk down the hill because I was sliding on the ice. Um, so I couldn't even actually go up and down to the medical school for my interviews, but, but and realized everybody's speaking French. So basically the education is in English, but the language of the streets is French yeah. and the language of the stores was French. Yeah. Um, and so I realized I, I had a first issue of French, um, but, I, but I loved the city. I, the city felt much more European to me and closer to what I was used to. Um, and there was some nostalgia around that, although I love New York. Um, and I remember in between, so I had an interview the first day and then I had a panel interview the second. And so that night, the in-between night, I went um, to Place des Arts and I, I, I attended a classical music concert that I loved. And I was like, oh, this could be good. This feels good. <laughs> I'm good here. This could work. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes you get a gut feeling that the place is the right place for you. And I had that. So got accepted and yeah. moved to Montreal. It's a beautiful city. It's a beautiful city. Yeah, and, and everyone says that it feels more European than, I mean, pe people say that about New Orleans a little bit in mm -hmm. the US and, and Montreal, I yeah. think, uh, in Canada. I mean, I would say it's a little bit, it felt a bit more European to me, both in the good and the bad, right? Yeah. It yeah. just has like both of those kind of, the legacy of the old, not flexible, yeah. the things that got me really excited in New York, but everything was possible and everything yeah. can change. You don't get that in Montreal. Yeah. You have the kind of the old continent kind of legacy, but you also get that kind of comfort feeling of something being stable and old and. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think uh, you're, you earn your MD in like 98 or something yes. like that, yeah? 
Um, and, and you still, I, I, did you know what you were going to study at that point? I mean, you, you've been physician all along, but without an area of specialty. Yeah. So it was actually hard for me. I liked a lot of things. I probably could have picked different routes. Like, I think some of this is luck and some of it was, um, so I liked a lot of things, but I did like, I was really puzzled by some philosophical questions around, you know, the things that I was worried about when I was, uh, I was thinking about when I was making graves with my Legos. The like existence the, of life. What does it mean? What yeah. does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be awake? What does it mean to have consciousness? Um, and I was also interested, um, I had like, um, I was interested in where behavior comes from, where wellness comes from, but also I had a, all my life I've been trying to kind of balance a little, I, I, I don't, I am not comfortable as, as much as I am a scientist and uh, understand, I, I want to understand relationships and have clarity in these relationships. I was not comfortable accepting that all I see is all there is and mm. that um, uh, I can conceptualize meaning without spirituality. I was always struggling with that. And at that time, I was also quite struggling about the nature of sin, if you like, versus mm. a failure because my brain is not working or because my environment has failed me. So I was having this kind of struggles around. So like, like if, let's say someone has sinned, as you mm -hmm. said. Like, what is a sin versus uh, I wasn't prepared for that. Yes. I, um, I wasn't, didn't have an opportunity. I was led astray. All those things that might lead someone towards sin. Yes. You, so what's what, the is, what is there? the nature of sin? Is yeah. it like our human condition predetermines our abilities? Is it what is free will? Where, where I have will, where I don't have will, where I have an illusion of will and create a whole universe around it and where... Uh, and I still sometimes struggle with stuff. Like sometimes I'm wondering whether I'm on somebody's uh, video game screen and I don't know it, right? On the other side of a video game yeah. screen. But yeah. but at the time, those kinds of things uh, made me think about psychiatry and neurology. And frankly, if there was more biological psychiatry in Montreal at the time, I may have picked a psychiatry, but there wasn't. Mm. So I ended up in neurology um, trying to kind of have some understand, trying to kind of deal with this idea of that I don't know where human experience comes from, <laughs> how, how it gets organized, where responsibility lies, where free will lies, um, where suffering exists and how that kind of interacts with free will and... and um, I mean, th these are much bigger questions yes. than um, can we remove the cancer or how do we set a broken bone, yes. right? So, so this, I understand why you did not end up being... Yeah, they were quite attractive questions yeah. to me. Yeah. Yep. So how, what did you decide? I mean, so you so just I ended up going to child neurology um, in Montreal, and I trained. Uh, I stayed in Montreal, uh, and I trained in neurology, child neurology in Montreal. And then about halfway through my child neurology training, I started meeting kids with neurodevelopmental differences as part of the training. And there were a couple of interesting things about that experience. Firstly. It was there was a very concrete problem. So neurologists get trained to localize a lesion. Uh -huh. So as you're training, you see symptoms and signs and in a patient, and then your supervisor says, and where do you think the lesion is? And you have to map it backwards and think about where the lesion may be in the brain. Yeah. But with neurodevelopmental kids, um, if you ask the question of where the lesion was, it was very hard to think about 
um, how you would localize uh, all the things that you saw in a particular location in the brain. So my science part, the curiosity part of like how things are put together and what is it that we understand and don't understand and how these things come about uh, was kind of getting excited uh, around uh, kids who were neurodivergent at the time. But the other thing is that I actually truly liked them. Yeah. <laughs> like there's something about how um, neurodivergent kids approach problems and think about the world that I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. So yeah. I was having a good time. Yeah. yeah. And so as I was finishing child neurology, um, I was thinking that my later training should be in, in that space. And that's what, so then you had a postdoc at Mount Sinai. Yeah, so then I finished um, in Montreal and got a postdoc in Mount Sinai at the Psychiatry there. So I have moved between neurology, psychiatry, and pediatrics quite a bit, depending on who claims what yep. and how we devise these sectors. So I moved to New York, did my uh, postdoctoral fellowship in neuroimaging and clinical trials uh, in autism. And then I got my first faculty appointment there. At Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai. Right. So I think your first paper, anyway, that mm -hmm. I could find was 2005, and it was looking at like repetitive behaviors. Yeah. So the first research project that was totally my research project was to try to map repetitive behaviors to basal ganglia structure and function uh, in the brain. And at the same time, I was working on a couple of clinical trials that looked at whether the premise there was that the symptom domains that autistic kids may experience distress around overlap uh, with other conditions, and can we explore um, interventions that have had benefit in other conditions in this population. And you know, I saw that you did a paper on spinal muscular atrophy someplace that too. That was right? my fellowship. That was, I was still in Montreal for this one. It was just late coming out. So as a resident, um, while I was doing, um, well, I was trained as a neurologist, I was quite interested on um, how you map genes to brain and brain to something that's measurable whether it's behavior or signs or symptoms. And so my first, first paper was on spinal muscular atrophy. Mm, okay, so um, while you, so okay, let's talk about your first faculty appointment, mm -hmm. but you're also seeing patients. You start to see patients, mm -hmm. right? In my reading of your mm -hmm. work, these two things sit side by side and they're actually very important for the way that you yes. do your work. Not only do you do this research, but you are seeing the human beings. Yes. And that is driving the research, and maybe even the research is sort of driving the way you treat the patients. Yes, I would say that's how it has worked for me. Uh, for me, the original drive, I've always liked science. I enjoy it um, very much, but on its own, um, it gets me back to my existential holes about whether I'm sitting on somebody's video screen yeah. <laughs> and I'm a video game, right? Um, to feel that, that, that there is some meaning to, to what I do and, and my life on this planet, I choose to believe <laughs> that there is meaning and that comes from the impact we have on each other. And so as a physician, I find meaning in the idea that somebody's life is better because they happen to have met me. And I don't mean this in a grandiose way because I know I often fail kids and mm -hmm. families, like this is a relationship, right? So mm -hmm. sometimes we fail each other, sometimes we support each other, but by understanding the nature of these relationships, understanding what people are telling you, and then using your science skills to think about potential solutions to problems, 
Sometimes you get it right, not always. And on those sometimes, then there is meaning, right? The, the, that these, these people's lives have been better because you existed and therefore there is meaning to your existence. I'm assuming that the way you interact with patients or their parents is the opposite of what you felt when they were kicking you out of the room because you're yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So you're always like, I'm going to sit down with these people, yeah. take every question they have. And understand, understand yeah. their experience, yeah. right? And that's why sometimes I get a little defensive <laughs> to, to protect the experiences of the people I have seen in clinic because I feel like this is truly a trusting a relationship that requires trust, that when, when people actually allow you to get into both their triumphs but also their suffering, um, enormous amount of trust is required so that harm is not done. And so I want to defend that trust, that the, the, the fact that I've been entrusted mm. with their experience. Not that I always get it right. Like, not that I don't misinterpret what they have tell me sometimes. But the fact that I sat down with them and I was entrusted with their experience, for me, it's a, is a sacred thing, right? Yeah. That I need to it's honor. A, it's like a pr- privilege almost. It's a if privilege. It, yeah. It's an absolute yeah. privilege, yeah. So uh, you you said something that I thought was interesting, and it was that um, I don't know where I, I heard this some uh, some recorded talk that you gave I think, but when people now we're talking about autism, when yeah. people come into your clinic and you see them, they are not coming because they're having problems with their repetitive behaviors. They're not coming because they um, they're coming because they have GI issues. They're coming because they have problems with sleep. They're coming because they have OCD issues that they can't control. That's what they want help with, right? And because you've seen and heard from people what they actually want help with, that is how you tend to drive your research towards those ends. Well, I would say, um, I would take a step back from that. I would say that I observed that as the kids were coming, so when I met 18-month-olds or two-year-olds, the the concern was the social, the delay in the language, the social uh, difficulty, the repetitive behaviors. But as I followed these kids over the years, these kids kept accumulating types of difficulties that would not necessarily map onto the core symptom domains, right? So it could be physical health, as you mentioned, could be their mental health very often. Um, And I also started observing that some kids seemed to be on very different trajectories. So some kids would grow up with very little co-occurring symptoms and some of them it's almost like they were on a trajectory that predicted that they keep accumulating diagnosis and symptoms. So first of all, there was a basic science question for me. So if if you're predicted to be on a course that um, is likely that, that, that suggests that you're going to get all these other conditions or symptoms or signs or whatever you want to call them uh, that will be distressing to you and, and you will need help for, um, but you started from the autism diagnosis, does it, what does that mean about the category of autism, right? The way we define it right now. So the first science question for me was like, do we have the right, should we learn from watching the kids grow and become youth and adults and question whether the way we define these categories um, may not be particularly helpful. Mm. And secondly, if two kids start from the same place but end up having very different trajectories as I follow them up, but they looked very similar to begin with, 
it, when you say look very similar to begin with, meaning meaning what? Like meaning they showed up at 18 months or two years. They had some language delay. They had poor eye contact. They were only having parallel play and were not developing. So phenotypically, they looked Phenotypically, they looked, they looked yeah. Yeah. very similar. Yeah. And it's clear why we'd, we would have given them the same diagnosis at the time, but ended up looking very different as adolescents. Is it possible that category that is meaningful for us to understand is not just the combination of symptoms at the beginning, but what this trajectory looks like so that as a physician, was what my job is to provide health-related service to, that actually is meaningful to people and makes their lives better, that my job is not necessarily to spend I don't know how many weeks giving a diagnosis and having kids waiting in waiting lists forever and ever because we take so long to give a diagnosis yep. and do all the extra, extra tests, yep. but actually trying to understand what is the predicted trajectory for that child and then intervening on the areas where I know my older youth that I see um, are experiencing distress and they want help with. Right, and right? so your answer to that mm -hmm. is to look at the biology. So my answer to that, well, this is one of the answers. So yeah. the basic answer as a scientist is, okay, if the category as defined right now is not giving me all the information that I need to predict what this person's biological trajectory and, and behavioral trajectory would be, should we go back to biology and actually interrogate these categories that we defined some time ago by observation, but never actually validated biologically. So I started thinking about, um, using standard methodology where we usually compare one diagnosis to another, mm -hmm. but but taking multiple modalities, so from genomics to brain imaging, for structure and function and other omics, to actual behavioral characterization for kids who had a variety of developmental diagnoses to see whether I could actually distinguish them. And this, what I was observing as the kids were growing was mostly about social determinants of health and not necessarily about what the original biology was. And and the first learnings were that actually we could not biologically validate these yeah. categories, right? Well, so, I mean, you, you were beginning to see things, but you could not go, there it is. No. Right, you, you're start, you're, you've been finding, because you know, in some of your papers, you've been finding things that are leading you to think about certain areas, but there is not some determinant that says, this is the ASD you will have, this is the one this child no. will have. Yeah, exactly. No. What, what I think what I'm learning from the data that I'm looking at right now is that the original diagnosis that we give to the kids is not necessarily the one that predicts their trajectory. And there are other factors uh, as to why we something is more salient to us at the beginning or a community has expertise to diagnose one condition versus another, so we ignore one and, and we think something is primary and something is secondary. We have developed all these kind of narratives about how you decide what's a primary diagnosis in a person and what are maybe secondary phenomena, but none of them have been yeah. validated. Like it's, it's about our interpretations of the world, right? And so I'm learning that there are kids who have the same diagnosis that have very, very different biologies and predicted to have very, very different trajectories. And there are kids who have very different diagnoses, different diagnostic labels, but in fact, biologically, they look very similar and they are likely to actually grow and have very similar trajectories. So I am interested in this, not because it's just a theoretically satisfying uh, exploration of, of how you organize the world, right? Uh, but because as a physician, I know 
it's possible to do harm and we've done harm. Harm, yeah. harm has been done, right? Yeah. So yeah. if we organize sectors around these labels and some kids get service, for example, and some kids don't based on their label, but the label is not actually what predicts the need, then we have created sectors that don't serve the needs of people, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's just some abstract uh, kind of category we created. And also I'm a little bit worried sometimes about what we teach people, uh, especially young kids, where we label them in ways that are not necessarily predicting something for them, right? So um, yes, there is, uh, there is autistic identity and it's very important to people. For those that find solace and community and purpose in that identity, I think it's extremely important. Yeah. But not everybody does. And so early on, understanding the category that will give you the most help to to experience the li your life as a good life i think is what's probably the most important thing and sometimes the label helps with that and sometimes the label harms with that and so trying to figure out what are the categories that most of the time actually help is is a thing that i'm interested in right yeah but yes but what would those categories be there's such a wide range mm -hmm. of phenotypes that how, how would you come up with language to cover all that I mean first of all I don't feel strongly that there has to be a single word to for each category right in fact I don't even think a category is a stable right yeah. so we can change categories as we grow and as we interact with our environment and yeah. all kinds of other things happen to us so I'm not sure that we need a system that just replaces one one word with another word or many or, or many I think uh, we need a framework that is mapping to, a, so we need to have clarity on what the ultimate goal is. So even that we don't have consensus on, but my version of what the ultimate goal is, is the same whether you're autistic or non-autistic. It's a, it's a, it's your personalized version of a good life. Mm -hmm. What do you envision as a good life? That is the ultimate goal, right? So uh, everybody's job in a developing child's life, whether you're a physician, a parent, a teacher, a neighbor, is to facilitate that version of a good life. And so I'm not sure that we necessarily need frame. The labels may be useful for certain things, but I also think we need frameworks that talk about things we do well, things we don't do well, things we need help, things we don't need help with, and also incorporate cultural perspectives, diversity, intersectionality, yeah. and all of that, that creates a framework for every person who's struggling, if they're struggling, about what they're working on, what the evidence is that's, uh, uh, you know, effect, uh, that evidence is for investing in an intervention or a treatment or a therapy or whatever it is, where you leave people alone to, to actually thrive in their own way, um, and, and that supports their version of a good life. And I'm not sure the labels help us with that. It's almost, I, I think it sounds like what you're saying is the labels just need to be more fluid. You, yes. you know, someone may be like this, but they're not, that doesn't lock you into that category for the rest of your days, right? You, you may move in and out as you improve on some things. And yeah, oh, that, that makes sense. Right, right. So where you experience impermanent distress does not have to be a stable thing. In fact, mm. we know it's not a stable thing, right? So people experience disability, first of all, in and out. There are people like, so unless you have um, a, a devastating physical disability that actually 
restrains you to constrict its kind of setting of movement. It's it's hard to argue that disability is always a stable construct, yeah. right? Yeah. We all have experienced some version of disability in some part of our lives. Now, some kids, some youth will experience more than others. And I don't want to put everything on a spectrum of, well, we all we all experience some, right? So some, some kids are on predicted courses of disability. And in those cases, I want to know what this predicted course is because then there is the opportunity not to prevent the difference. Like the we obsess about this quite a bit, but this is not about the difference. This is about your inability to enact the version of a good life that you had think, thought for yourself. Yeah. And so yeah. the whole point of intervention is to give you options and opportunities to enact this kind of vision, like to enable this vision for your life. But that needs to be flexible, needs to be fluid. It's not always about your primary, secondary label, right? Especially because these kids are going to end up with a lot of labels by the time they grow up. We know that happens. Yeah. Uh, There's a few things I want to ask you. Uh, I'm going to have trouble remembering the name of the paper, but it came out in 2009, and you're one of many authors on it. It was a nature paper, and you're looking at, the group was looking at a a bunch of SMPs to try to find some copy number variants, which then uh, were linked to ubiquitin degradation and neuronal cell adhesion. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this paper? No, you don't. I barely, but yes. Okay. So it's like super interesting. Yes. It, it had shown, I think, for the first time mm-hmm. that ASD might be related to these two pathways. Yes, yes, right? yes. And great paper. But you think fairly translationally. I mean, I know that mm-hmm. you have some patents. And I think Roche, mm-hmm. you work with Roche sometimes. So my thought is like, given your clinical background, when you look at that paper, what do you do with that? Yes. So uh, we have actually, I've thought quite a bit about this and, and, and struggled with this. And, and I think part of the reason we struggle a lot is because we're being too simplistic. <laughs> so the original idea was that we're going to find whatever, 10 to 12 genes, whatever the original model was, and then we're going to have these molecular targets, and then we're going to go after these molecular yeah. targets, and everybody's life is going to be better. Right. Of course, it's a super naive <laughs> um, version of how biology works. First of all, how our genomics works, how biology works. When I think about biological pathways right now, so I still think that there are biological pathways that are associated with difference, and there are biological pathways that are associated with distress and dysfunction. They're not always the same thing, um, but sometimes they are the same thing. Mm-hmm. And we, we know, for example, that there are certain rare variants where it is very hard to conceptualize an outcome of a variant like this as a desired outcome, right? That they, they actually, in those cases, the difference and the disability kind of uh, almost become the same thing. Um, but so I, I am very interested in thinking about biological interventions that open the opportunity, uh, make the opportunities for potential outcomes to be a bit wider, to give you, to, to allow us to cons- consider outcomes that are not what we originally predicted as possible uh, by making it biologically possible, mm. right? And that's how I think about medication trials and things like that. I don't think it's as simple as thinking about what my molecular target is in genetics and going after it. Occasionally, this has worked in in medicine, but often it hasn't worked in medicine. Forget development, which is get particularly complicated because it changes with time. I think the idea is that there is a downstream target uh, from that original biology that 
uh, is usually circuitry based um, that creates uh, conditions that make it harder for this person either to learn or creates mental health vulnerability and things like that. So then I'm thinking about the biological interventions, not necessarily mapping the original, original genetic variant and our understanding of it, but what is the net effect of that variation yeah. on biology as the child grows, and is there an opportunity to manipulate that? Yeah, and if it's a problem, can it be, can it be, yeah. can that suffering be soothed in some exactly. way? Exactly, if, yeah. if, if it's a, so I think a lot of this genetic variation that we have identified um, leads to basically a disorder of learning in a way, right? It constricts how much you learn and how you learn. And so if I could contribute um, to the knowledge base that allows kids to have a wider repertoire of potential uh, kind of learning uh, pathways and opportunities, that would be something that I think I would be, I, I would feel I have contributed to. And some of those variations make it more likely that you are vulnerable when yeah. it comes to mental health. And again, this is a barrier. This is not a learning necessarily issue, although sometimes it is. But sometimes it's a barrier to your ability to envision this good life where you constantly interrupted by vulnerability related to your mental health or phys your physical health. So those would also be wins. And that's where I see the role of biological interventions, right? It's yeah. not, they don't teach skills. Drugs don't teach skills. Devices don't teach skills on their own. They're facilitating either the skill-based acquisition programs that we have, the potential is to facilitate it if they open up learning or they remove barriers when people's mental health and physical health gets in the way of them being able to accomplish what they could otherwise accomplish. Yeah, okay. Sometimes when you speak, or when I've seen you speak, and I think in particular I'm thinking of um, INSAR in 2022, before you speak, you sort of gave off to the crowd, and this was like a keynote, so there are a lot of people, your kind of your identity markers. I'm a woman. I can't remember what you said. I might be of this age. I was born here. Mm -hmm. I'm whatever. And you felt it was important for the audience to know that. Yes. Why? Um, I think the way we interpret the world and our version of what a good life is, is influenced by our intersectionality. And we all have some. And sometimes part of the difficulty in the space is that we don't recognize that the concepts of a good life can, come, can be very different based on not just our underlying biology or where we grew up, but a lot of other identity markers. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't pretend that I have some objective view of the world. Uh, I'm very clear that I have a biased view of the world. I have a biased view of what good life is. It's something that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, I have a biased view of what a good outcome is. All of these things are biased because they're influenced by my own lived experience of what a good life is or what a good outcome is. And although Part of the gift of being a clinician is that you get to sit in these interactions with the families and learn and have almost like a lived experience of other people's versions of a good life. The idea that you can completely remove yourself from your own experience and have a totally objective, if you like, version of 
health, wellness, disease, disorder, condition, identity, outside of the things that have shaped your understanding of those things is probably a bit naive. So I've come to the point where I just disclose where I come from. And and maybe it's helpful and maybe it's not, but um, I want people to know why I think, uh, what, what are the things that shape uh, how I think about good life and good outcomes. And if they clearly come from a different place that's conflicting with the uh, types of experiences I have to give themselves permission to totally ignore and disregard what I'm talking about. Yeah. The, but it also does this thing, or I thought it was an interesting thing, where it uh, tells the audience that you're aware. Yes. That you may, that, not that you may, but you do have biases. Yes. Because it, so you're, you're saying, uh, here's who I am. Now, you can disagree. You might have a different background. But at least uh, kind of I'm thinking about it. I'm aware that this is where I come from. Which isn't doesn't mean that you're objective, but at least opens the door to objectivity, kind of in a way. Yeah, and it allows you to interrogate. So you know, our brains are Bayesian instruments, right? So our brains are built to use previous experience to shape uh, the expectation of what could come next. You know, so so we use our posterior previous probabilities of what we think the world is about to shape what our potential outcomes that can happen. Um, uh, in the future, right? Mm-hmm. And this is neuroscience. This is not debatable. This is not particularly debatable. This is not a metaphysical or religious position. Like this is neuroscience. Our brains are biased and they're biased by design yeah. because it makes them efficient uh, in learning, right? Yeah. So we learn much faster if we constrain the potential um, possibilities of what's next to be learned by what we learned before, right? So. Bayesian systems are very efficient, they're effective, they're learning fast, right? But they're also biased, they're racist, that's why human condition is racist by definition. And so I acknowledge I have a Bayesian brain, right? Like the the experiences I have do constrain a little bit how I think about what, what could happen next or how I explain things. But acknowledging that we're also working from a Bayesian brain is that we can think about how we interrogate a Bayesian system, right, to uh, find the problems that lead to biased conclusions, right? So, I mean, we talk a lot about AI and the risks of AI. The whole idea here is that if you know you have a Bayesian system and you know that it's been influenced by certain types of information, then you can develop algorithms and, and, and approaches to actually test what you fed it, how the decision making was uh, was done, and why you end up with a biased result. So I think acknowledging that we are learning in a biased way, this is how we're made, this is how our brains are made, gives us also the opportunity to create approaches that mm. interrogate the process that made us efficient learners, but also made us biased. Yeah, okay, last question. And this goes back to you being young, I think. So you're young. And you're thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be conscious? What does it mean to be alive? What is the meaning of life? What does it mean to be die? What happens when you die? Here's your grave that I made you from Legos. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your, your mother dies before you're mm-hmm. 20 years of age. So you saw, as you said, you're now older than she was, right? Mm-hmm. So you've seen her truncated life, if you will. Mm-hmm. Do you think about what the meaning of it? it, it it's because my, my, I've lost a parent too. And mm-hmm. I, I have seen... Th- the scope of their life now. I mean, I wasn't there at the beginning, but I've seen the end. And it makes me wonder sometimes, now that I've seen the end of it, mm-hmm. what was the meaning of it? Mm-hmm. Do you think about that with your mother at all? 
I do. I mean, I think it about my mom, my dad uh, now, but it's a more recent. Yeah, death. and your dad too, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'll be honest. I have my. I have different kinds of days, right? So, I do see the signature of my mom's life in not only on her children, uh, but other people see actually influenced and lives that she touched. Hmm. I can see how in the way I see the world and I interpret the world, I see her signature in, 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 the, in the environment that I'm in. Or, um, you know, by the time my dad died, he had a bit of um, vascular dementia and the brilliant mathematic mind that could do like calculations and computations. Uh, and we used to test him all the time and it was a game in the house, was not there anymore. Mm. But there was something about him that was there that was kind of loving, caring, and a stable force that provided some sense of continuity in his children when his wife died and they were teenagers and they were having all this kind of difficult, kind of the rock guy. He was a rock of a guy, right? Mm -hmm. That he was still a rock of a guy when he lost his computational mathematical ability. Um, so I can see that signature also in our family, you know, but there was kind of this continuity, um, dependability that he, he, even when he screwed up, you could see how he got to screwing up. And it was, it was not that anything had changed about how he committed he was to you yeah, yeah. and he was for you. And so those in those things, sometimes I find meaning. I, I see their lives as meaningful. I mean, I'm not going to lie. On the days where I'm thinking I'm on the computer screen for somebody, it's hard to find meaning, right? Yeah. Although I did hear a very interesting interview. Sometimes when I drive to work, I drive to work uh, these days because uh, I, I have a route that's not very good for public transportation. And uh, if I have a very early morning meeting, I'll drive. And um, on Canadian uh, broadcasting um, company radio, so the CBC, there are some interesting interviews sometimes early in the morning. And there was an interview with somebody about how do you maintain joy if you truly believe you are a computer screen or yeah. a video game screen, yeah. right? Yeah. And there was an interesting conversation about how then I will provide the best game for the person who plays the game that I can possibly provide, right? So in, in some ways, it's a choice, right? So I, of course, I have rabbit hole days where I'm like, there's a lot of suffering in this world. Yeah. There is joy, there is suffering. And sometimes it's very hard to make meaning out of it. But sometimes finding meaning is a choice. Yeah. You, you make the choice that you will find meaning and within the constraints of what the human experience is, you will contribute meaning to the best of your ability. And that's the end of science, right? Like beyond that, you are crossing to metaphysical spaces, which is why I still have some of that because I need it for managing my existential distress, right? Yeah. Like it's hard to, to, to maintain that belief and commitment and choice all the time um, by just using your logical brain. Perfect. Thank you. Is that okay? Thank, yeah, thank you. Uh, 
an incredible mind. I, I love that she spends her time thinking about hardcore biology and then also the questions that plague us late at night, such as, why are we here? How do we know that we're here? It's fascinating. Okay, thank you, Evdokia, for participating and for being a guest on Synaptic. This will be archived on spectrumnews.org, where we also have a transcript, and the show can be found wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and whatever app that you use. If you enjoyed this and feel inclined to rate our podcast, please do so as it helps others find the show in what is a very crowded podcast landscape. If you'd like to comment on this show or whatever we do at Spectrum, you can find us on Twitter, where our handle is at Spectrum. Our theme song was written and performed by Chris Collinwood. The next episode will be out October 1st. I won't say to guess, but it's already recorded, and I think you'll like it. Or anyway, I hope so. That's it. This one is over, and I'll let the music play us out. Is your three o'clock in here? It's not actually. So okay, you good. Take your all right. time. Okay, all right. Good, good. Um, how are you gonna get home? You got, how are you gonna get to the airport? You're gonna Uber it? Yeah, Uber it. Uh, yes. I'll figure it out. Okay. It's okay. Yeah. You no, can you go. have time. Time you have, but I'm not sure how much.